0: Greetings, and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, November the 18th. Uh, Our show for today is called Precious Snowflake Syndrome. Cry-in, safe spaces, and microaggressions. So, good morning, or good afternoon to everyone. Welcome to the show. We're going to talk about precious snowflakes. Uh reached a fever pitch, especially in America now. Uh, We're being overrun by a bunch of crybabies whose whining has reached a fever pitch. Uh, With the recent presidential election, it's it's as if a switch has been flicked, which gives people carte blanche to emote all over everyone else and throw tantrums in public. (laughs) There was a time when uh, people were able to maintain a stiff upper lip and deal with adversity, but now that seems to be being eroded. Uh, feelings are all that matter facts and reality are given a short shrift so on today's show we're going to talk about the roots of this emotional hysteria why grown-ups have to have cry-ins have safe spaces and be protected by <laughs> microaggressions <laughs> and then maybe towards the end of the show we'll get into what the effects on an individual and what the effects are on a society When people avoid reality And embrace lies So Mm -hmm. On our In our studio, virtual studio We have Doug Elliot, Erica And myself, Tiffany Uh, Jonathan is away And so is Gabby So hello everyone Hello
1: Good afternoon
0: (laughs) (laughs) So where do we want to start?
2: At the beginning.
0: Yeah, let's start at the beginning. Maybe. Sometime.
3: What is the beginning, though?
0: Does it start with because childhood? It seems
3: like. Oh, I guess it does. But I think the, the, the I think the reason that we kind of chose this topic is just because this latest event the uh, the election results in the U.S. has kind of like brought this out in such massive force. I mean, I, I, I never realized how prevalent this kind of precious snowflake syndrome really was until seeing like all this footage of different people just losing it, absolutely losing (laughs) it over, you know, I've I've never seen anybody react to an election like this before in my entire life. Mm -hmm. So it was really kind of shocking for me, but I mean, obviously this isn't the beginning, Mm -hmm. but, um,
0: no, I, I think know. we all have known people like this. Uh, I think the term precious snowflake yeah. is relatively new, at least for me. I mean, we just call them whiners mm-hmm. or crybabies or uh, baby
2: adults. <laughs> Arrested <laughs> development.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but we've always, always have known people like this, and they're my least favorite type of people because they don't really have any legitimate grievances. They just like to whine about everyday things that someone normal could just deal with. Mm. So we do have a yeah, clip exactly. that we can start off with. Mm. It's um, it's called the little emperor syndrome, and it's actually something out of China where they have the one child policy. So the one child that the family does have is complete, completely treated like royalty. And uh, so this will give us like a, a starting off point. So I'll go ahead and play this clip.
4: Let's Oops. talk about these protesting cops.
0: That's the wrong one.
4: <laughs> it's called <laughs> little <laughs> empress syndrome. Only children who grow up treated like royalty by their parents. It stems from Chinese culture, but now Australian parents are raising their own generation of precious princes. <laughs> Meet 10 year old Zadi Lu from Beijing. He's an only child and king of the castle. Hmm.
0: We seem to have lost some audio, some audio here. Hmm. See if we can try it again.
4: It's called Little Empress Syndrome. Only children who grow up treated like royalty by their parents. It stems from Chinese culture, but now Australian parents are raising their own generation of precious princes. Meet 10-year-old Zadi Lu from Beijing. He's an only child and king of the castle. Does. Zadi is chauffeur driven, does no chores around the house, sleeps in mum and dad's bed and has a full time tutor. It seems incredible, but in China it's almost normal. Since the introduction of the one child policy in 1978, there have been a whole generation of little emperors. And it's not just confined to wealthy families. There are around 240 million kids in China's Generation Y. Plenty are overindulged and given extraordinary privileges. Our parenting expert, Michael Cargregg, joins us now. Morning to you, Michael. Now, we're not following in China's footsteps, are we?
5: Oh, look, I think there's some disturbing trends uh, that suggest we might be. Uh, For example, you can go and buy some baby knee pads at your local baby store. Last time I looked, they came pre-padded. If you look at the number of kids walking to school in primary school, 26% compared to 80% when I was at school. And most disturbingly, the number of kids helping around the house. Now, in 1985, what they found was six hours a week of chores were being done. Now it's less than 15 minutes. Goodness me, they're,
4: they're extraordinary. Although a lot of parents would say hey not letting your kids walk to school or even the the babe, baby knee pads or now I've seen toddler um, helmets are for the safety of the child. That They're just caring for them better.
5: How did we ever get through our childhood, Koshi? That's all I have to say. <laughs> I just think it's ridiculous and of course it's helped too by schools who no longer now score at footy who give participation ribbons rather than first second third prize and everybody gets a satisfactory grade okay
4: so what are the consequences of this later on when the kids grow up and do have to work go into the workforce become adults themselves
5: all of life's important lessons have to be accompanied by a little bit of frustration and failure and what we're doing with this type of parenting is we're taking frustration and failure out of the equation. So what happens is we build a bunch of kids who simply aren't resilient. They can't cope with adversity. They can't cope with anything going wrong in their lives. And possibly this might account for the spiralling rates of anxiety and depression in kids today.
4: Yeah, that is the sad result of it. All right, Michael, thank you for that. Appreciate Pleasure, it. Pleasure, that.
0: Thank you for that, Michael. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you had a good point about, you know, the baby knee pads and the play dates and
2: mm-hmm.
0: the not getting grades at school anymore. Uh, everybody getting a reward yeah. for mediocre <laughs> mediocre accomplishments.
3: Like just showing up. Yeah. Participation awards. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the, you know, when I look at playgrounds these days, you know, I remember some pretty awesome playgrounds when I was a kid and now I see these playgrounds and they're just like, they're all padded. Mm-hmm. They have like this foam on them everywhere. There's no edges that anybody could possibly bump into. It's like, it's kind of like a metaphor for the way these kids are coming raised these days. Like they, they're, like everything is padded. I mean, we kind of talked about this before with the helicopter parenting, but even when you see a lot of the way the universities are reacting to the reactions of these precious snowflakes, you know, they're offering like Play-Doh therapy dogs, coloring books, safe spaces, cry-ins, like Mm -hmm. all this stuff that is like, just kind of catering to the, the emotional wants of of these um, you know these students you know these people who are basically supposed to be adults at this point
6: mm-hmm.
3: so it's 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 kind of like just an extension of the same thing you're just getting this extension of of infancy really where nothing is difficult everything is okay and we will soften the blows that life gives you in every way possible. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's I I agree with that, Doug. It, it is very much like an infantile state, and ideally, when someone reaches adulthood, they should come to the understanding um, that their needs are not priority in every situation. They don't get what they want <laughs> when they want it, uh, as a child does. You know, a child generally needs to learn that from their parents, because um, children are generally well, from the children that i've seen and from what I can remember from when I was a child, um we are generally very needy um, and we need to be taught discipline in in some senses you know and so <laughs> and so mm-hmm. this this uh this phenomena these these precious snowflakes as they're called it's like these individuals have been either so mollycoddled by society that they they never really learnt to um, to see the world in a way that isn't so self-focused. It's mm-hmm. like it's like a, it's like a yeah. form of narcissism that they carry with them. And when anything doesn't go in whichever way they want it to go or if it doesn't if reality doesn't match to how how they feel it should be, then it, it's mm-hmm. a really painful experience for them and it's like they mm-hmm. haven't really come to terms with the way that reality actually is in in the objective sense.
0: Yeah, it's like an extended childhood. I mean, children are naturally narcissistic, and they think that the world revolves around them. But people don't seem to be growing out of that stage anymore. Uh, Erica, didn't you have a story about self-esteem programs when you were growing up at school?
2: (laughs) So I grew up in the 70s, 80s, and I think it was, you know, fourth or fifth grade, they implemented a program called Project Self-Esteem. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it was kind of the beginning of probably this coddling behavior. You know, you were given warm fuzzies if you said a nice thing to a fellow student. And it was gold stars and all these kind of rewards. And I, I remember thinking, like, this is kind of bizarre, you know, even as a young kid, that it was that, that, that foundation of we're not going to say anything that would disrupt another person's sense of well-being. And it went on for many years, you know, that it was this part of this curriculum of how to make warm fuzzies and not go into topics that might unnerve kids. And maybe it was the foundation of that programming to to come later.
0: Yeah, we didn't have Mm. a specific program called self-esteem, but it was always, you know, that term was bandied about and. You know, you always want to emphasize people's strengths and ignore the weaknesses. And it mm-hmm. it just seemed really phony because you're mm-hmm. not really seeing a person or yourself in the way you truly are. And it kind of leaves you in this stagnated state where you remain a child and you don't grow up. You don't challenge yourself. You don't learn new ways of relating to people. And now we have a society of yeah. people like
2: that. Well, I just had this f- interesting memory about... Um, a program, uh, I had a teacher, I think it was in third or fourth grade, where if the student would tattle on other kids, she would pin a tail to you, you mm-hmm. <laughs> your tattle tail. And the parents got so upset that I think eventually she ended up having to leave school because that was what would now oh. be considered a microaggression maybe, that that, that was inappropriate, <laughs> that that You know, and it's interesting because children can get into those types of behaviors where you have the toddler and she was obviously just trying to do something to shine light on that and that it's not necessarily a productive thing to constantly be telling on each Mm -hmm. other to to work it out, you know. So just little things like that, you know, again, it's hard to remember because it was so many years ago, but those small kind of things stick out in your mind is what's really going on here. And kind of like we talked about in the education show, it's like this weird sort of normalizing of just sick and distorted non-real behavior. Censoring, a lot of self-censoring.
3: Well, I guess it all kind of grows out of political correctness, right? I mean, the thoughts behind political correctness is that you have to kind of like self-censor in a way to make it so anything you say couldn't possibly be construed as offensive to somebody else. And it's really like, it's such a twisted actual way of, of, of approaching something because first of all, how can you possibly know what's going to offend somebody else? I mean, you know, there are, obviously there's a line there where you don't say anything like, deliberately offensive to somebody, but, you know, tripping over yourself to try and and correct your own behavior in a way so that it couldn't possibly be perceived as possibly offensive to somebody else. It just puts you in such a really bizarre state of mind. Um, and I think that, that, that is kind of what it, it like, you know, the, the impetus behind that is that we don't want to offend anybody in any way to make them feel uncomfortable, And which is ridiculous because again, any individual might feel uncomfortable for any number of different reasons. So it's almost like, yeah, it's, it's like just, I come back to that metaphor of the padding again. It's kind of like you're trying to pad interactions with people like human interactions need to be padded in such a way where nothing offensive is ever said and everything is very, um, you know, washed and clean and sanitary so that, you know, nobody nobody ever has a negative feeling enter into their consciousness whatsoever.
2: <laughs> and I think that that's it's what happens ridiculous. with kids is that they end up self-censoring so much and then they turn to an authority figure to solve their problems mm-hmm. for them. Um, back to the tattletaling yeah. thing. Like, mm-hmm. I can't handle the situation on my own I'm going to look to an authority figure to handle it for me. And then it gets imprinted very young. Mm. Yeah. And the children don't work Mm -hmm. out their conflicts on their own. There's always a teacher
0: or a parent or some other adult that's always stepping in to solve everything for them. And they have no way of learning how to cope on their own. No way to navigate social interactions on their own and learn. Because, you know, the best way to learn is to make mistakes in a lot of cases And if you say something that's obviously rude and hurtful to another person, you know, if you have a conscious, you're going to you're going to see that.
2: Yeah. And not letting children go through frustrations like the clip was saying, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't we don't want these kids to be frustrated in any way. But just as Tiffany was saying, you have to feel frustrated to work through and evolve and develop a thick skin and also be okay with who you are. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah. and um and as a child to feel certain things or or have certain thoughts pop up and then be told by your environment um and the authority figures that that isn't somehow wrong for feeling that because it's not politically mm. correct so you have to you have to keep it inside and you, you can't express those feelings or those thoughts mm. then that can severely hamper s- like a child's development you know their, their sense of self they, mm. they there's all sorts of things that could come of that and they could actually become a, they could grow on to be a, a very damaged human being who, who who isn't in touch with their own wants and their own needs because they were always taught that their feelings were, were, were in some way wrong, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I think
2: that's why we see this mm-hmm. rise of anxiety like we shared on last week's show, you know, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds are feeling anxious, and even suicidal whereas that's not something that happened mm-hmm. at the rate it does you know now, mm-hmm. twenty years ago. I mean you weren't getting counselors reporting seven and eight year olds calling in a helpline because they feel so anxious it's like they're they can't be true to themselves, who mm-hmm. they are and yeah,
0: and there's all this talk yeah. about safe spaces where you can express yourself but that is really just lip service because it's a safe space to express political, politically correct feelings only. I mean, you can't really yeah. say how you really feel about anything. There's no safe space for that. And it kind of cuts and God down forbid to
3: use the wrong gender pronoun.
0: Yeah, it just cuts <laughs> down on critical thinking. You can't, uh, your opinion can't differ from the majority. You can't, you know, see a certain mm-hmm. situation in a different way than somebody else without feeling attacked. And I think that's why they had the polls so wrong, like with this recent election. Like there were a lot of people who voted for Trump who were just afraid to say because they did not want to deal with someone's emotional reaction to their differing opinion. And we ended up with Trump yeah. as president. <laughs> <laughs>
3: which kind of gets into the whole idea. And, you know, we were talking about what the origin of this is and I'm sure, you know, the helicopter parenting definitely comes into it, but I think there's also kind of something that's a little bit more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the whole idea of this, this echo chamber um, that people tend to themselves in when it comes to things like media and what they are actually exposed to. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, Well, there's been a lot of commentators who have said that one of the reasons that some like so many people are completely shocked by the results is because they're basically like, you know, we put ourselves in this environment where there's all these algorithms that kind of choose what we're going to be exposed to. You know, if you watch uh, a video on YouTube, that's called Hillary is the best. (laughs) <laughs> then it's going to suggest other videos that are kind of like that. So you're going to get exposed to a lot more videos that are kind of like reasons that Hillary are so great. Here's the top 10 and like all these other kinds of things. And what they these algorithms tend to do is um, not prioritize things that would make you uncomfortable. So, you know, they want you to kind of stay on their site and keep on clicking and anything that kind of makes you uncomfortable, obviously is going to um, encourage people to kind of leave the site or not, not want to uh, continue with their, their current session. So you end up with all this information. I mean, this applies to Facebook feeds. It applies to Twitter. Like, you know, people kind of. End up creating their own bubble by being friends with people who all have the same opinion that they do, who kind of tend to get their news from the same sources. And, um, so you get, you get in this echo chamber where you kind of express yourself, your ideas about the election. And, oh, lo and behold, every single one of your friends on Facebook agrees with you. Mm-hmm. And it's like you get yourself into this kind of situation where you don't have any dissenting opinion. Pe- penetrating this bubble that you've created. And I mean, part of it is because of the, the social media and just the way that it's, um, that it's constructed and the way it's designed. But I mean, I think people self-impose this kind of thing as well. So, um, I think one of the reasons that you have people like, I mean, you have a combination of these, these kids who have never had to face a negative thought in their entire life Mm -hmm. suddenly have their whole world come crashing down around them because they just did not conceive that this was even possible that um that the 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 elector- the candidate that they didn't want to win actually won, so I think uh i i I wonder maybe this is a good question. how much easier is it in this day and age to live in a bubble?
0: I think it's much easier, like everybody has a cell phone, and everybody has a camera mm. on their cell phone, they all have the ability to record themselves going off about whatever it is that bothers them. And not only can you do Mm -hmm. it, you see other people doing it. So it's kind of like social proof proof coming into play, like where there's all these millions of other YouTubers who are doing that. So it kind of gives you uh, the green light to go ahead and put your video up there. I mean, before social media, Mm -hmm. people would have, I mean, they would have kept their feelings to themselves or just maybe just talked about it with their close circle of friends and family. Like there was a time where like, if you had like deep feelings, certain things that, you know, you felt pretty strongly about that kind of give you some kind of emotional reaction, you would keep your feelings close to your chest, at least in public. Mm. You wouldn't go around emoting all over everyone. And today that's kind <laughs> of an acceptable, an acceptable thing to do.
2: Well, and it kind of comes mm. back to those little emperors or children um, who are just given this free reign Mm -hmm. to act a fool (laughs) basically. But then it's never, you know, it's, it's like they don't grow out of it. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, they are not really politically
0: savvy anyway. Uh, They only have like a really surface understanding of what the issues are. They didn't do any research. You know, they don't, I mean, they can't locate certain countries on a map. They get all their news from CNN (laughs) or the newspaper or comedians or, you know, the Daily Show or something like that. So they don't have a very, yeah, a very deep understanding of what the issues are anyway. And then you couple that with their coddled upbringing and their just uh, ability to give their emotions free range. And you have this formula for disaster.
3: Yeah. I guess I'm kind of thinking about, you know, back in the day when, uh, you know, the tribe would all be kind of gathered around the fire and stuff like that. If anybody had, you know, you everybody would probably, i you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but I imagine everybody would be kind of like expressing their feelings of what's going on with the tribe, what's happening and all that kind of thing. Well, now that things are kind of blown up onto a more global scale, um, you know, just keeping up with everything is really quite difficult. And you've got this kind of echo chamber, effect where Mm -hmm. everybody's only hearing what they want to hear, like their own voice reflected back at them essentially. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I guess, I guess it is a lot easier to kind of just completely like wall yourself off and be in this bubble Mm -hmm. and only like, you know, no dissenting voice gets through. I mean, how many times have you seen on Facebook? Like I can't, I can't believe how many people I actually saw on um, you know, my quote unquote friends list who said I've removed all Trump's from my from my friend list so now mm-hmm. I don't have to, to listen to their BS. And it's <laughs> like, you know, how many other things are they just removing people left, right, and center and like just creating this wall of of only hearing what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. Like talk about trying to create your own reality. It's pretty crazy.
2: Yeah.
0: It's like a complete detachment from reality. They're walling themselves off where mm-hmm. no other dissenting information can come in. And it's not like, uh, you know, people weren't racist or sexist uh, before Trump got elected. I mean, <laughs> it's always been that way. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's kind of baffling to me just how, how strong this is, it's, Kind of like living in a world full of people with borderline personality disorder, <laughs> where they kind of just beat you down and chase you from room to room just so they can talk about their feelings, and they don't realize that nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> like all these people crying, like these celebrities crying, saying, like crying on television. Oh, God. Like, I'm going to move to yeah. Canada, or I'm going to move here, or I'm going to move there, and <laughs> Our our country is finished, and is it's just sickening to watch it's a little funny too but yeah. it's mostly sickening
3: it is yeah it's funny like i mean who you just have to look at the level of narcissism there it's where i i think everybody in america wants to see me kind of melt down about this so i'm gonna i'm gonna film myself having a tantrum
0: <laughs>
6: <laughs> oh jeez
0: like, even Hillary Clinton herself, didn't she say she just wanted to curl into a ball and not leave the house? <laughs> I mean, even she's doing yeah. it to a certain is- extent. Like, what other presidential candidate who lost would actually say that out <laughs> loud to people?
3: <laughs> Good question. Yeah.
1: And what that message is telling people the people who respect it is that that is an appropriate and um, rational way of dealing with something that doesn't match up to your um, expectations. You know, if if something doesn't happen Mm -hmm. the exact way that you, that you wish it to happen, then um, the only, the, you know, the the best way that you approach that or you deal with that information is you crawl up into a ball and you know, you don't leave the house. (laughs) That's, that's not a very good, um, (laughs) like,
0: Whatever happened to pulling yourself
2: up by your bootstraps.
6: You I know, was just gonna say getting on with yeah. it.
2: What what are people gonna do when something really serious happens? That that's kind of my concern. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of these people who are the loudest, it's like the loud
0: majority is now controlling the narrative and controlling how everybody should think and feel about everything. But these people mm-hmm like they've never had to face any adversity in their entire lives. These are like middle, upper class, middle, upper, upper middle class people who were basically Mm -hmm. born with silver spoons in their mouths. And, you know, they never had to worry about anything. Where like for the most of the people all over the world, you know, is not like that. I Mm -hmm. mean, these are rich people's tears. Most people have to worry about just Mm -hmm. making it from day to day, finding food, You know, paying their utilities if they even Mm -hmm. are lucky enough to have, you know, utilities or even running water. Like these people are complaining, Mm -hmm. like um, Tyler Durden over at Zero Hedge, you know, made a good point. Um, Mm -hmm. Like even the minimum wage worker at McDonald's is better off than 90 percent of the people in the entire world. Like they need to go and visit some of these other less developed countries and see how people have it. And then you would see, like, you really don't have anything to complain about at all.
1: This is it. Yeah. This, this, this is overwhelming sense of entitlement that um, these sort of millennial children or adults now um, have been brought up with. Uh, it's like this, 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 this sense of entitlement that, you know, they deserve to have... Healthcare, You know, they deserve to have great educations. They deserve to have all of these things that they're given, but they don't feel like they have to do any work for that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like um, a few of the guys were saying um, before that, you know, the parents in the baby boomer generation, you know, they, they, they had to work. And they worked for, you know, a few decades to build a, a, a proper family and, you know, they, they, they accrued wealth and, and such and, and to have a healthy and prosperous life. But then you have the, um, the following generation and that was when things started to go go downhill essentially mm-hmm. uh it, i think it's mm-hmm. in one of the clips later on but now it's got to the point where again people people feel like they deserve everything the world owes them everything they don't have to do any work mm-hmm. for that and then if they're not given what they wish for in return then they kick up a massive fuss about it mm-hmm. you know and, and you see mm-hmm. this with the college protests in the just just the way that the mm-hmm. people behave it's 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 so childlike and it's such a narcissistic way of viewing the world that i I honestly think that you know these individuals when something really bad does happen they are they're just going to crumble you know because they they talk about first world problems these are these are first world problems as you guys said you know you go to any third world country and you see that these guys have to work day in day out just to afford to put food on the table and sometimes Mm -hmm. they can't even do do that you know Mm -hmm. they live in shacks over in India, you know, <laughs> I swear the majority of people that we saw, they were living on nothing, uh, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. And then you come over. I came back to the UK after spending like a year in India. Came back to the UK and to hear what people were moaning about. It's so absolutely um, separated from from the real problems that that humanity is facing. You know.
0: Yeah. Let's yeah. go ahead and play this clip. Um, it's about a guy who's ranting about these college protesters.
7: Let's talk about these protesting college kids. Good for you. Great job exercising your First Amendment rights. Well, now I'm going to exercise mine. What are you protesting? The American political process, the Electoral College, the Constitution? No. You just didn't get your way. Get back into Starbucks and yell about your latte order getting messed up. Maybe go back to class. Start with Civics 101. Yeah, I remember when I was in college and thought I knew everything, too. Look, I blame my generation. Yes, my generation. Because these whiny college kids, they're our kids. They're our responsibility. You see, our baby boomer parents, they worked hard and in many cases, they became wealthy. It took them years to accomplish that. Many of them worked so hard, they forgot they had kids that needed discipline. So discipline began to fade away. My generation, their kids, Generation X, came along, and we were spoiled rotten. We got stuff instead of quality time. We got our way. We got out of college thinking the world owed us something immediately. We thought we deserved to be successful right now and on par with the 30-year accomplishments of our parents. And we weren't. And we became disillusioned. Then we had millennial babies. Oh, they never know failure. We wouldn't allow it. These wondrous miracles that could do no wrong. They deserve the best in comfort, luxury, and gaming systems. They needed the fastest internet and constant praise and a trophy for everything they sucked at. The latest and greatest for my babies. They didn't just want it. They deserved it. This generation even wants emotional things. We need to feel right about our world. And if it doesn't make me emotionally satisfied, there must be something wrong with it. So now we've got our coddled protesters curled up in their college cry zones. How can I be expected to take a test when I really don't feel good about reality? <laughs> I'm sorry your daddy called you princess, baby, because you're not one. Daddy lied. What do you expect from kids that grew up warping their brains watching the Wiggles? Fruit salad. Listen, pumpkin spice, going to class is a privilege, not a right. Your education, while not really preparing you for a lot of what's headed your way in life, isn't free. And I'm guessing mommy and daddy pays the bills. So here's an idea. Why don't you just quit school? Go get a job and some health insurance and live happily ever after. (laughs) That's right. The folks you're protesting for have made those things virtually impossible. And you have no marketable skills. So get back to class, snowflake, while the rest of us fix this. Now, kids, for our next class, we're going to teach you how you can't call a person that married a foreigner a xenophobe. (laughs) Love y'all. God bless. Here's a Facebook poke when what you really need is a (laughs) spanking.
0: Pretty much. Yeah, I think he nailed that one. <laughs> yeah.
1: And what what I find so so fascinating about this whole situation with the um, the the people protesting against Trump is that <laughs> is that this is democracy, people. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what everyone Mm. braves about in the U.S. They talk about how it's, you know, the most exception, exceptional nation with, you know, uh, democracy and all of this stuff. But when they get the democracy, they don't like it. It doesn't it doesn't fit to the democracy that they want. So, OK, we're going to protest it. (laughs)
0: Let's get rid of the electoral college that we kept for all this time. You know, even when the (laughs) the, uh, president's. That we wanted to win, one, with the Electoral College. But as soon as, you know, things don't go their way, then they want to just completely updo the whole system.
3: They didn't have a problem with it like a week ago. No. But all of a sudden, (laughs) now it's (laughs) the worst thing ever. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous.
0: Well, we do have another good clip about Generation Snowflake. Where did <laughs> Where did it go? Where,
2: where did, did the Generation come?
0: Special Snowflake come from? And this guy gets into some mm. some good points also. So we can come back and talk about that.
8: You know, when I was growing up, throwing tantrums didn't get you anywhere, and they sure as hell weren't tolerated. But nowadays, throwing an apoplectic seizure and behaving like a self-entitled brat is considered a legitimate form of political protest. It's oh no.
0: Oh, we
2: should film oh! Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. Sir, please, Do you need some sir, help? S- sir,
7: Do you need please! Some help? Sir the Trump! Dump the Trump! It is not about creating an intellectual speech! It is not! Do you understand that? It's about creating a home here! Take the Take
8: the am So where the hell did this infantilized, easily triggered, narcissistic, whiny, neurotic, special snowflake generation come from? Why has our society pandered to these overgrown adult babies? Why are they so unreasonable? How do they get so sanctimonious and intolerant of differing opinions? Why is reality such a problem for them? Why do they need safe spaces and trigger warnings? Well, the last question is probably pretty easy to explain. Nowadays, if you claim to be a victim of some kind of perceived invisible fictitious oppression... You can get special treatment and privileges. Just tell people you're an oppressed minority or that you're standing up for an oppressed minority. And the system and the populace at large are either willfully or subconsciously biased against you or the minority group you're advocating for. And then conclude by saying that someone else's differing views to yours are dangerous to you or said minority group in some way, and before you know it, your voice will be the only one that's allowed a platform. Everyone else's right to speak will be taken from them through censorship or prosecution. So ultimately, these kids know how to manipulate social media, government, academic institutions to gain power by claiming oppression. They are power hungry. But don't think they licked this ability off the stones. Oh no! They learned this from years of playing their parents off of each other to get their own way when they were children. With both parents having to go out into the workforce, stay-at-home mothers in short supply... And marriage having collapsed as an institution thanks to good old feminism, Generation Snowflake was the generation that learned to play on their parents' guilt for having to drop them off at daycare every morning. Many parents report feeling a pang of guilt for not being there for their kids. They instead drop them off at Montessori or daycare or whatever and let someone else who may have different values and morals to them raise their kid. As a consequence, parents can spoil their kids and give in to their demands as a way of, I don't know, punishing themselves for not being there, and their child grows up with an unfulfilled need, the need for validation and the attention of their parents. Psychologist Oliver James has warned that a rapid increase in nursery places has led to a generation of violent little savages. As he puts it, shoving youngsters into nurseries was simply warehousing them so that the government could push mothers back to work to reap income for the exchequer. The author of How Not to Fuck Them Up said, We start off as barbarians, and what makes us civilized is being loved and looked after. If you are an 18-month-old in a nursery, it is impossible for you to not feel threatened. You are surrounded by savages, and you are a little savage too. He told the Mail to try to look after three young toddlers is hard, but to try to look after four is just mad. How on earth do you do that well and meet their needs? Mr. James pointed to a study in America which tracked youngsters for 15 years. It showed a correlation between the hours placed with nursery to increased aggression and bad behaviour, reported by both parents and nursery workers. The Mail Online has also highlighted how 40 primary school children in England were expelled every day for assaulting their teachers. Violence levels have soared most in Southeast, rising 41% from 2006, 2007, 2010, 2011. Some 8,030 pupils aged 5 to 11 received, were expelled in 2010, 2011, a 15% rise over four years. The explosion of violence in the classroom is very plausibly linked to the rise of daycare under new labor, Mr. James said. So basically, Generation Snowflake are behaving like toddlers because they never really fully grew up, and they spend the rest of their lives trying to fill the emotional void left by an absent, loving parental presence. They take this mindset into adulthood, and wouldn't you know it, they gravitate towards movements, ideas, and ideologies that are primarily based on emotional arguments rather than intellectual discovery and cold hard, uncompromising facts and empiricism. Because facts don't care about your feelings, these millennials reject them on the grounds of how discomforting they are. They want to feel comfortable all the time because it's just how they've been conditioned to operate from their developmental years. While it's hard to look at these angry, demented college kids as victims, that's what they are, and we do need to have some level of sympathy for them. But we also need to realize that they need help, not further encouragement and capitulation to their unreasonable demands. These disaffected, dysfunctional millennials are then preyed upon by Marxist college professors who offer them degrees in bullshit subjects like race or gender studies. And because you can't get a job from these subjects... The only option is aggressive, shouty, political activism.
7: Bullshit!
8: These subjects appeal to them because Marxism is always emotionally appealing and speaks to nihilistic and solipsistic thinking. It's not hard to see where this kind of infantilization has led to the rise of the social justice warrior. Anyway! Thank you so much for watching this video, guys. If you enjoyed it, please hit that like button and, of course, subscribe for more. See you next time. Bye-bye.
3: Wow. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very interesting point. I, uh, you know, I always kind of have trouble when somebody tries to nail something down to like one thing, like, you Mm -hmm. know, this whole issue came from, um, daycare, but maybe daycare is just kind of one of the, one, one of the contributing factors, but it was just kind of by having, um, you know, that both parents go out to the workforce and therefore having less um, direct care for the children is is maybe what kind of led to this sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I think you had a good point about uh, parents being a little bit overindulgent to kind of assuage their guilt because they're not mm-hmm. there as much as they would like to be. But like you said, I think there's many factors that come into play. You can't really nail it down to one thing because there are people who yeah. actually had childhoods like that and who turned out to be normal non-precious snowflakes. So yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard to pin down.
3: And I'm sure there are um there's probably precious snowflakes out there also who didn't necessarily have a a mm-hmm. daycare kind of uh upbringing.
7: Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it is
3: it is difficult to pin down. You know, I often wonder—I or I shouldn't say often wonder—but I've been wondering the past couple of days when we uh, decided that we were going to be doing this topic. You know, the 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 generation that kind of brought these kids up. Um, yeah, you, know, you know, I'm just thinking that they're kind of like the talk show generation who um, were always exposed to this idea, of various self help books and therapies and things like that. That you know, parents inevitably just mess up their kids. Like it doesn't seem to matter, you know, if you coddle them too much, you mess them up. If you don't give them enough attention, then you mess them up. You know, if you um, use any kind of uh, corporal punishment on them, then that's the, you're going to mess them up. But you know, if you again coddle them too much, then you're going to, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of thing. And I wonder if they just got to the, the point where they just kind of were just so exhausted that they just kind of gave in, and anything that their kid asked, they're just like, here, I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to argue with you. I don't like so kind of, um, terrified of screwing them up inside right. by saying no to them, mm-hmm. that they just kind of went on this, uh, this absolute permissive, um, bent. I don't know. Maybe it's, uh. Maybe not.
2: <laughs> I, I think there's something gonna, to that. If you watch the documentary, The Corporation, there's a little segment in there about the mm. nag factor. And and basically, you know, with this working model where both parents are working and, and survival-oriented, and the child just nags and nags and nags, and it's reinforced through TV or media or advertising or whatever, and the parent becomes so beaten down that they just give in. And all of a sudden, the yeah. child becomes the tyrant in the family, and mm-hmm. it, it's almost like uh, it—it's a modeling of behavior. And, and you know, even with the best intentions, you just get exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then it's reinforced yeah. in the school. All the kids are acting like little tyrants, and you've got a teacher with twenty-seven little tyrants, like he was saying in the video. Like if you tried to watch three. Three kids under three, four is just—you know—it's—it it's, need, it needs more attention. There, ne- there needs to be more balance. It's—it's yeah. it's like the insane taking over the asylum. That seems like the kind <laughs> of world we're living in right now. Uh, there's college yeah. professors that. out that are
0: complaining about how difficult it is to teach their students because they're all such a bunch of whiny brats. Um.
2: Yeah, Yeah. there was an article in Psychology Today uh, came out in 2015, but it's talking about declining student resilience, Mm -hmm. and it's a serious problem for colleges. Mm -hmm. Uh, This uh, Peter Gray, a PhD, and he's basically saying over the past five years uh, in the in the counseling department, they've received an enormous amount of emergency calls for students who are increasingly seeking help for. Things that are causing emotional crisis, like everyday life problems, like Mm -hmm. there was one where, you know, someone was called the B word and called the counselor and couldn't handle it or, or two other students that had a mouse in their dorm room and called the counselor and the counselor was like, well, there's not much we can really do for you. So they called the police <laughs> and the police came and set, set a mouse trap for them. I mean, talk about, you know, not oh, being oh able to God. deal with like a very real everyday kind of small problem. Mm-hmm. He also talked about, that. oh, did you want to add something? Sorry, go
1: that? ahead. No, go ahead, Erica. <laughs>
2: Well, he, um, he also talked about how this resilience has um, led faculty to be expected to, to do more hand-holding, right? And to lower their academic <laughs> standards and uh, um, not challenge students mm-hmm. for fear of losing their job or getting negative reviews. <laughs> so, uh, oh, God. He, they, I think he actually yeah, calls this hostage. Yeah, he actually said that uh, universities are now becoming helicopter institutions. So it's the same okay. thing that's happening with the helicopter parents. It's mm-hmm. being carried over now to colleges, and parents are having these expectations, especially if they're paying the tuition for these kids, that their children be given opportunities to make up bad grades and again, fighting their fights for them.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, just, just to comment on, um, on the possible causes of, you know, at the root of all of this, I think it's probably multifaceted. Uh, I would also say that, you know, nutrition probably plays a really big role in it as well. Uh, just since, you know, the, the modern day diet is so nutritionally deficient, and there's barely any brain specific nutrients um that, that that are available free food nowadays and so you know your emotional health is really really determined by by whether you're putting the right things in your body first of all you know as a, mm-hmm. as a baseline and so even if someone necessarily hasn't necessarily um had one of these stereotypical heli- helicopter type childhoods um then I think as long as they're not getting they're, they're on a crappy standard american diet they're not getting their proper nutrients their brain's not going to be able to function anyway and so this probably um you know this this probably is you know contributing to to the fact that they're emotion uh, reacting so crazily to to a bloody mouse in the room you know what i mean like they can't <laughs> even they can't even regulate their emotions you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. there's just so many factors that come into this but my main point was was that i think i think our modern day environment and and our nutrition is so poor now that we haven't really got the tools to be able to 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 even deal with anything stressful you know
0: and our society is such that even with those things you mentioned like the poor diet affecting your brain function it's Reinforced, like this kind of emotional hystericalness is being reinforced, like even the college professors, even though some of them complain about how the students have no resilience to them, um, they're also like the Mm. college professors are... Like giving them, you know, chances to skip exams because they're upset about Hillary not being elected or they're holding cry ins and they're handing out tissues and hot chocolate or they're offering arts and crafts sessions. Like one professional wrote in that she's going to bring in all of her arts and crafts or her students can, you know, express themselves about how they feel about the election. Uh, They're canceling classes. So it's all just reinforced like if one person did and they got shut yeah. down for being a brat then it probably wouldn't have wouldn't have gone this far but it's become accepted and normal
2: yeah i mean they had a cry in at cornell university <laughs> 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 sure. unbelievable right. maybe i should cry instead
3: of laugh. <laughs> like what's gonna happen when those guys what what's gonna happen when those guys actually get into the w- workforce mm-hmm. you know it's like there it was uh one of one of the law schools had a cry in or something. Is that the one, Cornell? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And all I was thinking was once these guys actually become lawyers, like are, are they gonna be able to have a cry in if their case doesn't go well? They're you gonna, know, is their boss gonna like give the them court, uh, <laughs> give them the day off? Yeah, seriously yeah. How do you mean you don't find him guilty? <laughs> like honestly, it's well, just like how are these people gonna deal with the world?
1: Well, I mean, at Yale University, there's one professor that, that's actually really reinforcing this type of thinking. And um, <laughs> recently, one of the articles we read in preparation for the show it was talking about how um, there was there was scheduled a, a midterm examination um, the day after the um, presidential elections. <laughs> well it was two days after I think. And um, <laughs> and one of the um one of the economics professors um basically he received loads of um loads of emails from students proclaiming that they wouldn't be able to do well on the test because they were so upset and emotionally distraught by Trump <laughs> winning the election that um that he actually posted to the rest of the, the students and he says, look, OK, um, I've received many heartfelt emails and I'm very um, responsive to this. And um, basically the exams are now op- optional. So you don't have to do the exams because <laughs> I respect your emotions. And I, th- I think I think it will be really fair if, you know, because you're all in such a bad state about the election. If you just have this this exam off and we can we can change the marking system so that you don't lose grades. <laughs> so oh what message God. are these? What message are these people getting when when their university professors <laughs> are actually endorsing this type of behavior? You know, a university is meant to be somewhere where you go and learn, and it's meant to be disciplined. It's meant to pre- pre- um you know prepare you for the workforce. Like you know, you're not going to be able to um as as you said, Doug. You know um you're not going to be able to turn up at work and say, hey guys, you know, I'm I'm feeling quite upset because um because you know, I, I burnt my food last night, and it doesn't taste very good. So basically, <laughs> I'm just going to take the day off work. Is, is that okay? <laughs> it's not going to happen. You, know, you get sacked. So what, it's what taken
2: that, the dog you know? ate my homework to a whole new level.
1: Exactly. Excuses.
2: Sure.
0: Well, it's also yeah. very phony I mean, and narcissistic. I mean, it's the the same thing with this whole safety pin movement like people wearing safety pins. Well, I was at I was at work the other day and some lady comes in and we were just chit-chatting and I noticed she had a safety pin on her shirt and I was like, "Oh, why why are you wearing a safety pin? I thought she was sewing and forgot, you know, <laughs> to take the safety pin off of her shirt." <laughs> and so she gave me this little thingy and it says Wear this safety pin to show your support, solidarity, and respect for immigrants, refugees, women, people of color, and others threatened by hate and fear. People may see your safety pin and know that you're a friendly face and that they are safe with you. And I was just so shocked I just couldn't say anything. (laughs) It was just so stupid. And just so disingenuous. I mean, if they really cared about immigrants, refugees, women or people of color, they would be protesting and wearing safety pins after every episode of police brutality. They will be wearing safety pins Mm -hmm. for all of the people that we've killed. The U.S. has killed in Iraq and Syria. They will be crying about the refugee crisis in Europe that America and its Western allies has caused. So don't give me this crap about how all of a sudden, just because Hillary lost, now you care about uh, immigrants and refugees and people of color. Give me a break.
2: It's a silent statement. Yeah.
0: It's just all about them and no, their it own isn't. feelings and wanting to be part of some, I don't know, illegitimate group. But people who criticize the yep. safety pin movement, they call them diaper pins. And I totally <laughs> agree because they're just big babies. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
3: Well, it's, it's like, people- it's interesting that these kinds of movements, like, like, you know, it's the same thing with all those ribbon movements and stuff like that. It's a fashion accessory. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it is. It's, it's a way for people to kind of like show that they're in with this cool, caring group that, that has, um, you know, that's sensitive and understands the plight, et cetera, et cetera. But it really, it's nothing more than a fashion statement and, and a way of like um, showing that you belong to the same group.
0: I mean, really. It's completely
1: it- narcissistic.
0: Yeah. What would they do? Say, you know, a Syrian refugee came up to them because they saw that they had a safety pin on them and they wanted to talk about how the U.S. has bombed them and, you know, blown up hospitals and, you know, are supporting ISIS. Would that be a safe space for them to talk about those feelings
6: then?
1: (laughs) It kind of reminds me of that whole thing with the um, Je suis Charlie and how you had, you know, you had loads of these people jumping onto that and changing their um, Facebook pictures and their social media to, you know, I am Charlie and all of this stuff. But it's it's kind of like that selective empathy, you know, and it's it's really narcissistic. And it's just a way to sort of, um, you know, it's, it's like a fashion accessory, like you said, Doug. And I mm. think a, a lot of the time, what it might be is that people um, it's a way that they can feel like they are actually doing something. You know, it's like, um, oh, yeah, raise awareness for cancer. They go on a jog here and there and, you know, maybe raise a tenner or something. And, um, and it makes them feel good about themselves because they feel like they're really doing something of worth. Um, but they don't actually bother to, to go and look into any of this. And I think if they genuinely did care and they really did want to know, then, you know, they, they would put the effort in to actually learn about the subject uh, and as you said, Tiff, like if if they really wanted to protest, why aren't they protesting against all all of the police brutality in the US? I mean, there's so many things in the US that they that, mm-hmm. that are really genuinely worthy of protest, and that people really should be protesting about. But none of that is actually happening, <laughs> you know. So it's it's quite hypocritical, and it's really quite um, disingenuous, you know. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Uh, Have we excoriated these precious snowflakes enough? I mean, there's got to be some kind of uh, (laughs) consequence. I mean, how much worse can it get? I mean, we already said that the inmates are running the asylum. People are just completely hysterical. Feelings are all that matters. Facts don't matter. You know, what is the effect of just believing in lies and avoiding reality? I mean, it has to be something.
3: Well, I mean, we kind of had a preview of it with this uh, with this election. I mean, when you know somebody immerses themselves in that echo chamber, only believes what they're told by their preferred sources. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like what what we saw during this election is all the coverage um, that was in favor of Hillary was basically all it could do, they could do is say that Trump was basically the next Hitler. So everybody who's watching that believes that. And then when Trump gets elected, lo and behold, everybody is freaking right out because they actually believe that we have elected Hitler. And that's what's coming. You know, the concentration camps are next. So I'd say one consequence of believing lies like this is when the truth actually does come along, it just smacks you across the head. You get absolutely laid out by it. So that's certainly one consequence. Well, in um, the
0: book Political Ponerology by Lobachevsky, Mm. he says that people Mm -hmm. believe a lie. It kind of atrophies their critical faculties, and it turns them into half wits. So if you believe Mm -hmm. these lies, it makes your ability to accurately reason and to critically think all of that stops. You can't perceive pathological Mm -hmm. individuals for what they really are. Like, no one points out anything bad about Hillary. None of these protesters, you you have to wonder, like, do they even look into all of the things she's done, all of the corruption, you know, the body count, the connection to pedophilia, any
2: of that stuff. It's like their brains can't even go there. Or they maybe go there slightly by admitting she's a war criminal. But Mm -hmm. then it ends at that. Mm -hmm. She's still better. Yeah. Well, the brain... (laughs) (laughs)
0: At least it actually, <laughs> yeah, it actually works harder to kind of hold on to these false beliefs. The brain works harder when you tell a lie when you believe in a lie, like there's a part of the mm. brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus, and that is the part of the brain that helps you learn, pay attention, and solve problems so when this mm. this part of the brain, the anterior cingulate gyrus, is I don't know if it's actually physically damaged, but there's certain ways that you think that become hardwired. So once you continue to believe in lies and to never seek out the truth, that part of your brain just becomes dysfunctional and you can't detect errors. Hmm. You have a lot of difficulty with resolving conflict. You have emotional instability. You can't pay attention very well. And I think that's what we're seeing Mm -hmm. on a societal level. I mean, it works individually, but it seems like everybody in the society Hmm. has has this syndrome all of a sudden. Hmm. Yes. So So does
3: that mean that people have to be aware that they're telling lies?
0: I don't know. I guess if they're telling a lie. I don't think that necessarily yeah, neither do I. has to be the case.
1: Well, I mean, if, if you, I guess you could maybe speculate that from an informational point of view, that um, the information that you subject yourself to may carry with it a certain um, nature, I guess, uh, you know, a level of coherence perhaps. Um, mm. or complexity in, in that, in that truth, true information possibly resonates with your, your body, your, your information system on a different level to what, to what a lie does. I, I don't know. This is all very speculative, but I would imagine that, you know, maybe there's, there's, there's something there.
0: Hmm. Maybe. But there was also, I think this was from the book evil genes where they did this experiment where they had like staunch Republicans and staunch Democrats take this little, you know, test and they um, I think they measured their brain function. And if they tried to come up with something positive about the candidate that was not in their party, it the parts of their brain that were associated with uh, with pain actually lit up and Mm -hmm. once they found a way to ignore the facts and go back to the emotion, the the pain parts of their brain kind of died down and they were able to be comfortable again. So it actually hurts people's brains to believe in a lie or to actually challenge a lie. So it's more comfortable to, you know, sequester yourself in this little echo chamber. But I, I think that that is a choice. You may not know what the truth is, but you do know that there are, other bits of information, like other differing opinions from yours and the choice mm-hmm. to not explore that is probably what gets people in trouble, even if they don't specifically know what the truth is versus the lie. I don't know. It's just.
3: Or just remaining open even. Yeah. Or just, just keeping that. yourself, you know, it's like, here's, here's here's what I think right now based on what I know, but I'm open to reject that, and sometimes that can be really painful. Like you're saying, Tiff, I think that uh, you know sometimes you d- you don't realize how much you have come to depend on one thing being true until it gets challenged, and that can that can be quite painful. I think. I think well, we, all- when
1: you construct when you construct your whole um, you know idea of reality, how it is set out um, in a certain way. And that is all dependent on certain factors. Um, when those factors are challenged or when they maybe, uh, turn out not to be true, then, then everything that is constructed from that point or developing from that factor, um, ultimately must collapse. And so it, you know, it, it, it can, I can imagine it can feel for someone that they're Their world, their whole view of reality is literally demolished if this one thing, um, turns out not to be true. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that's, that's a very uncomfortable feeling. And so, um, the majority of people really, they, they work to maintain, um, those, those sort of structural, um, base elements, um, to be, to be true, you know? And 80. it's
2: reinforced by their environment. So in these college campuses, everyone's doing it. So let's not think critically about what's happening. Let's just go with the raw emotion. I think as Michael Moore claimed mm-hmm. recently. You what know, did he say? Don't don't yeah. think. Don't think. Just just go on that raw emotion. Get out there and start protesting. Like what? What are you protesting? Yeah. Democracy.
3: <laughs> no, don't yeah. think. Don't think. <laughs>
2: So even
0: if believing in lies and ignoring reality doesn't physically damage your brain, like as in leave lesions behind in your brain, it does hardwire your brain. So, you know, brains that are neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you're used to thinking Mm -hmm. in a certain way over years and years, if you can continue to think the same way, that's the way your brain is going to work. And it's going to take the ability to sit with your negative emotions and be able to feel them without, you know, breaking down or throwing a tantrum and never getting over it. I mean, you're going to have to do that. But a lot of people aren't willing to go there and not able to go there. But on some level, they have to know that they are avoiding reality because they know that there are certain things that they don't want to know. Hmm. So that's, that's our precious snowflakes. And in a way, I mean, it's fun to (laughs) to riff on these people, but it's kind of sad too. I'm not going to say that I feel like an extraordinary amount of pity for them, but it's disturbing and they need help, but I don't think that they want help. They're not asking for help. It's just very interesting to watch. Yeah.
3: It's almost like they need to go back to school, like some kind of how to function school. Like not an academic institution, but like some kind of like really basic, this is how you treat other people type school.
2: It's called life. I don't know if that exists. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. They need to get life. a
3: job. That's what they need. They need a job.
5: It's called life and
0: taking it, yeah. responsibility for your life a and second, having, yeah. having an internal <laughs> versus an external locus of control. Um, maybe a lot of these people don't think that they have any control over their lives, so they have to rail and moan and fight against things where a person who has a more hmm. internal locus of control can draw on their own inner strength. These people don't have anything to draw on, so they look to an authority or something to tell them how to feel, how to think, how to act, what to do.
6: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm.
0: So do we have any other tidbits or stories before we go to the pet health segment?
3: Um
7: Nope. Okay.
0: We're going to go to Zoya's pet health segment. She's going to be talking about euthanasia and your cats and dogs.
2: Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of
3: the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic isn't an easy one. It is euthanasia in dogs and cats. How to know when. In many cases, pet owners try not to think about it, as if trying to delay the inevitable. Or perhaps they think that planning something like this means disrespect to their furry companion in any way. Well, it is definitely not so. Knowing when is the most optimal time for your pet to leave this world means that you care about them and don't want them to suffer. So, here is the recording by Dr. Jones, who shows you what euthanasia is. He talks about points to help you decide and what to expect during euthanasia. Here it is.
6: This is Dr. Andrew Jones. In this edition of Energy Secrets, I'm going to be talking about euthanasia for dogs and cats. Points to help you decide exactly what is it and what you can expect. Hi you guys, welcome again back to my channel. Um, this is a little bit of a more serious video. I often get asked the question, you know, should I be euthanizing my dog or cat? Um, is this a good time? Is there anything that you can say that can help me make that decision? You know, what can I expect? Um, so I thought it was important that I make a video of that and I've, in truth, I probably avoided it. It, it is an uncomfortable subject. Um, something in veterinary practice that I've done hundreds, more like probably thousands of times. Um, it's not necessarily one of the more pleasant parts of the job, um, but that's something I'm grateful that, you know, being a veterinarian, we have the ability to do that. Um, so I thought it was important to make a video about euthanasia. Um, I've got my own pets here in the background. I've got Lewis here, which you can see me petting, and just right up in there behind me is Dussy, who's asleep. Um, In part it's also a good video because I've got Gussie who's the age of 20. She currently has end-stage kidney failure. She's now got a pretty serious secondary infections where there's just quite the odor coming from her urine and there's issues around her quality of life so it's in part a good video for me to be making and I think probably a good one you guys are going to get some um, helpful information out of. So first you guys, what is euthanasia? Um, Euthanasia is just a humane way to end an animal's life. Um, typically in veterinary practice what it means is injecting a drug, it's called sodium pentobarbital. It, at one point was a drug used for anesthesia, it's an older anesthetic drug and literally what it does is um, when you inject it, um, it stops your dog your cat from breathing, so they go into a state of anesthesia um, and as their breath stops they're fully sedated under anesthetic now within a short period of time after that their heart will stop it's a very humane gentle way um, to have an animal end their life so what are some of the things to help you decide you know is this the right time or not is the you know one of the more common questions i was asked in practice with our older pets so some of the big things initially i really think it's important that we're looking at quality of life not quantity of life so assessing you know does your dog, your cat, it, do they still have a good quality of life? Um, Gussie here for instance, she's still eating, she's still drinking, um, she's relatively content. Yeah, she sleeps most of the time, every 20, over 20 hours a day. Um, she still interacts with us, she still comes to visit, she still gets petted, she's still purring when she's petted, and she seems reasonably comfortable. Um, those are some real big things to be asking yourself. You know, What is your dog, your cat's quality of life? Are they still interacting with you? Um, If they are, are they in any serious amounts of pain and can that pain be adequately controlled? Do they have a terminal illness or not, something we know is going to end their life? There are all some really big, big questions to be asking yourself and to be asking you, sort of going through making that decision. And then the other things I found is, for instance, in terms of assessing that or not, is, is asking questions about yourself. I mean, are you making this decision? To, in terms of extend your dog or cat's life because you have real big issues with death or is it is it really in your dog or cat's best interest to keep them living? For the most part I found most clients are pretty reasonable, they're pretty thoughtful and you know, they, you have a pretty good sense about when is the right time to make that decision or not. Some other points I think are important to bring up obviously you need to be having this discussion with your veterinarian clearly they go through this you know often a number of times throughout the week, that have had years of experience in terms of making that decision. So, talking with them about what is their, you know, assessment of the quality of your pet's life? Are they in any serious amount of discomfort or pain? Talk to friends, talk to neighbors, other family members. I mean, have this discussion. What is the right time or not? Because it's not something that you want to prolong your pet's life unnecessarily, nor do you want to make that decision in a rush too. So it's something to be really thought out. And in terms of going through that basic checklist around the quality of life. I mean, Lewis is an example. Yes, he's older. Yeah, he has a degree of arthritis. He can't hear anymore. But he's a pretty darn happy dog. He's still eating regularly, drinking regularly. He's still able to exercise. Um, he's very much interactive with us as our family. He's quite happy to still greet other dogs. He's got a pretty darn good quality of life. And, you know, I would often talk about, with, for instance, with many of the dog owners, especially some of these labs, for instance, like Lewis, you know, a big indicator of being really seriously ill is their appetite. Is he, If they've still got a great appetite, it's a good indicator that they're still pretty happy, pretty content. Lewis has a great appetite, but I know if his appetite dramatically drops off, he to show no interest in food. There's something serious, seriously wrong there. And secondary if that prolongs and persists and as he's a bit older. And all, for instance, then the time is going to become very close. With Gussie here, for instance, um, her big thing is, yeah, she still is eating. She still is drinking. She's still interacting with us in terms of she's still seeking attention. She's getting affection. And she's pretty comfortable as far as, you know, my basic assessment in terms of her not being in pain um, her basic underlying condition of having kidney failure. Yes, she's drinking more water, but she's getting primarily canned food. She's staying hydrated. You need to be able to assess those underlying things that could be going on with your dog or cat and making sure that they're not uncomfortable in any way, or at least that that degree of discomfort can be managed. So if they are in pain, they're, not, they're getting adequate pain control. So that's a real good assessment for me. I'm going to know with Dussie, for instance, and I suspect what's going to happen is that she's going to lose her appetite. She's going to get progressively dehydrated. Then it's going to be pretty obvious. I'm going to have this very anorexic, dehydrated, lethargic cat who's not want- who's not interacting. And then that, the decision will be made. And, and then she'll be able to be um, comfortably euthanized. So euthanasia I- itself involves... And this is how I did it in veterinary practice, is we first had a big discussion with a client, we're really clear in terms of what we're doing, and we've made the correct decision. Um, secondly, I taught clients the steps of euthanasia. In terms of initially first, it's, you know, we're, and what I would do in practice is first sedate um, anyone's dog or cat first. So they're given an injection in the muscle or just under the skin, Take anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes before their dog is very calm and relaxed and sedated first. Um, usually, generally, some form of narcotic painkiller, um, such as hydromorphone, maybe in combination with a sedative, such as ace parmesan. You do want your dog relaxed and comfortable. The next thing we would discuss in some cases, um, we would put in an IV catheter to make it easy to give the final IV injection. Um, I did many home euthanasias. And for majority of those guys, that wasn't an option. They didn't need to do it. The biggest thing was having uh, the pets comfortable and sedated first. So they're giving that I, that I, I am or sub-Q sedation first. And then the last injection comes in the form of the sodium pentobarbital. is given IV. Um, so for instance, in the dogs, it would be an injection that's given in the front of their, the front of their leg. That's the cephalic vein. Um, uh, if I was uh, in practice, I would have an animal health technician there to roll the vein and hold it off, and then we do a fairly, do the injection, and, and as I said, it happens pretty quickly, so within the uh, sort of five or ten seconds, our dogs or cats would stop breathing, and then eventually their heart would stop beating. With the cats, they'd be given an injection into the back of their leg, typically, um, this lay, this vein in the inside part of their thigh called the saphenous vein. Um, and as I said, if it's done in that way, it's a very, uh, a very safe, uh, painless way uh, to be having your dog or cat humanely end their life. And unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, I've been able to be able to do that in veterinary practice. I've seen hundreds of animals humanely euthanized, and yeah, I've even had to do it to my own pets. Hopefully you're not at that point to make that decision, That, and if you are, Just know that it's a real, humane way to end your dog or your cat's life. So thank you guys for watching this edition of Every Secret and Euthanasia, Um, you having a better understanding of what euthanasia is, and some of the points to consider um, if you are considering euthanasia for your dog or cat.
0: Oh, that was so sad.
3: Yeah, kind of a sad topic.
0: Yeah, I think I need a safe space. <laughs> uh. Anyway, folks, that's our show on precious snowflakes. I hope we provided you guys with a safe space to microaggress against <laughs> the madness, <laughs> the madness of the precious snowflakes. Hopefully, as the days progress and the election gets farther and farther away. Maybe things will calm down a little bit. But as it stands, people are nuts. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that's our show for today. Join us next week for another show, the topic of which is to be determined. And tune in on Sunday for our other SOT Radio show. Truth, Respective, we're behind the headlines. Just check out the sat.radio.net page to find out your local time so thanks everybody for listening in thanks to all of our chatters and we will see you next week bye bye everybody bye everybody
5: bye
3: guys